So, Shakespeare's sonnets. Sir? A sonnet is a poem. Sir? Written in 14 Sir? lines, the last two of Sir? which must form a rhyming Sir? couplet. Sir? Yes, Lauren? Can I ask you a question? Not just now. Can I ask you a question now? Just wait. But can I just ask you a question? I only want to ask you a question. Can I ask you a question? I'm just asking you a question. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> what is it? Are you the doctor? <laughs> doctor who? I don't know what you're talking about. You look like Doctor Who, though. I'm not Doctor Who, I'm your English teacher. I don't think you are, though. Lauren. I think you're a 945-year-old Time Lord. Listen. <laughs> Did you just pitch up from Mars? Don't be ridiculous. You know your house, right? What? You know your house? Yeah. Is it bigger on the inside? A bit quiet. If you park the TARDIS on a meter. <laughs> Can we please get back to Shakespeare? Thank you. So... Do you fancy Billy Piper, sir? Right. <laughs> Live from SUNY Stony Brook on the campus of uh, Stony Brook University in New York, this is Doctor Who Podshock. Gallifrey presents Doctor Who Podshock, episode 72 for the week of, uh, see, it's March 26th, 2007. My name is Ken Deep, alongside Mr. Louis Trapani. Hello. And Mr. James Norton, across the pond. Hello. And sitting right next to us, our special guest today is uh, author and uh, Doctor Who aficionado, Mr. James, uh, Mr. John Peel. <laughs> Hello. And we are joined by a cast of thousands. <laughs> As we are live from the uh, Icon 26 Science Fact, Fantasy, and Fiction Convention, the 26th annual convention here at SUNY Stony Brook, the State University of New York at Stony Brook here on Long Island. And this is our second year recording Podshock in front of a studio audience, uh, which has really been, it's just going to be, it was a great experience last year and we're looking forward to having everybody here again and, and participating. Um, it's a little bit different as far as the show goes. You'll notice that we're using a microphone that's going to pick up every single sound. So uh, we hope uh, for those of you out there that are listening, uh, you'll forgive any uh, any wrappers and doors opening and uh, bottles opening and various ambient sounds, so it's going to be, uh, we're, going to be we're doing this uh, au natural today, <laughs> as everybody will get a chance to hear uh, every single thing in the room. But let's jump right into the news first, Lewis, and what do we have in the newsroom? 
the biggest news item is that next week, one week from today, series three of the 2007 series of Doctor Who begins. So we're very excited about that. The first episode is um, Smith and Jones, and it's a, obviously a, a play. If it, for the long time Doctor Who fans will know that the pseudonym that doc, the Doctor had used back. I guess mostly used in the Pertwee era, but um, I think it started in Troughton. In Troughton is um, John Smith. So, and the new companion is um, Martha Free, Jones. Martha Jones, played by Freema Adjaman. So, hence the title. And we're looking forward to it. And we will attempt to keep things as as spoiler free as we can. The only thing that I will uh, will say right off the bat is if we mention uh, episode titles for the coming season. That will be the only spoilers that will be included in today's show. And as many Doctor Who fans know, over the years there's plenty Day of the Daleks. It was a good chance the Daleks were in that episode. So there are a few little spoilers like that that, that might uh, might come to the surface. But uh, that's probably the... There's only one or two of those this season that might give away what's actually in the story. Um, the other big news on a related note, as we're about to begin Series 3, is that Series 4 has been confirmed. That uh, Executive Producer Russell T. Davies has confirmed that the fourth series of is underway. Um, they have been planning this for a while, obviously because they can't wait for the BBC to, uh, to, you know, to, to commission the series. They, they have to be prepared for it. So, um, but it was pretty much a, a shoe in uh, being this, how successful the series has been so far. So. But we're very excited about that, that it's officially um, has been commissioned. Of course, and it appears our audience are as well very excited about it. <laughs> and one other mention, while we're, we're uh, doing the show from Stony Brook, Long Island, uh, for Long Islanders, the people in the room, uh, WLIW has picked up uh, the Chris, Chris Eccleston Series 1 of Doctor Who, and that will begin in April. Yes, they showed a preview of it on their pledge drive, and it begins... Uh, in April, they're doing three airings of the episodes, uh, Wednesdays at 10, Fridays at midnight, and Saturdays at 3 a.m., if my memory is correct. So if you missed one, uh, I think it's a great idea, first off, that uh, they're, they're spreading it out like that. It has three opportunities uh, to, to garner an audience. Uh, and also, if you miss one, you have a chance to catch up on a, in a different time slot in, in case you don't have a VCR or a TiVo or various uh, modern contraptions. Commercial free, and apparently they're running the original BBC preview to the coming week, which Sci-Fi Channel had cut out when they aired it, uh, which yeah, makes awesome. it as authentic a broadcast as you can get, and uh, that's very exciting. Well, just as a, uh, a programming note, as the new series begins, what we have done last year with Series 2 is that we were doing uh, reviews of each episode each week, and we're going to do that again this, this time around, but for those that don't want any spoilers, instead of having to skip ahead chapters in our, uh, in our podcast, what you can do is, what, what we're going to do, rather, is have those as separate, separate um, episodes, so you can just kind of pocket those until you have a chance to see those episodes and then review them later, and you can still continue to listen to our show without um, worries of getting something spoiled. Mm-hmm. Anything else in the newsroom, Dr. Lou? Well, James, do you have anything? Um, there was one thing that I wanted to talk about, which is kind of a minor news story, because there's loads of stuff going on out there right, right now, because uh, obviously it's the run-up to the third series. But a lot of our listeners have emailed in, in the past and said, you know, um, what do you guys think about the possibility of doing multi-doctor stories 
Um, well, now we know because David Tennant's kind of spoken about it. Well, Russell T. Davies has spoken about it in the past and said, you know, there's no possibility while I'm producer, it's not going to happen, just to paraphrase what he's been saying. Well, on Digital Spy today, um, David Tennant has talked about the possibility of doing a multi-doctor story in the new series, and he says, you know, sure, it's a lovely idea, but I don't know about the practicalities of it, really. It's one of those shows, and because it goes on for a long time, it has this history. So I just wanted to let people know that, the, that he has kind of commented on this. And of course, check out uh, our fantastic uh, partners website. I'm sure everybody's aware of it. That's, of course, Outpost Gallifrey at gallifrey1.com. And uh, you'll see the story right there in the news uh, section. So there you are. I just thought it was interesting because uh, obviously we've had so many people email in about this. Yeah, and it's, you know, it started with, with a, um, a very quick write off by Russell T. Davies that he wasn't going to do it. And now that they're even. Uh, that the the conversation is extended past no, it's kind of interesting, you know. That, that kind of opens the door. I guess maybe the the uh, the enthusiasm for that kind of story. I mean, they're really always fan favorites. It's just an instant hit anytime you you uh, combine doctors. And even if they stick with just the new series history, where it's Christopher Eccleston and and, and David Tennant, and and something I've commented mm -hmm. on in the past is if the they the uh, David Tennant was cast while Christopher Eccleston was still on the show and it was wrapping up. And Colin Baker the same way. You know, Peter Davison was doing his final season and the world knew that Colin Baker was on deck. There's always an opportunity with those early castings to preview the next Doctor, and that's something they've never done on the show. And I think would always be interesting, even if it's, you know, he's stuck in one of those time eddies and he's floating around side by side or something. But to see the face of a forthcoming doctor, mm -hmm. I think would be fascinating yeah. if they wanted right. to toy around with that idea. In other words, what Ken is saying is to work it into the story where you can see if you're, if the current doctor is the ninth doctor, to have Dave Tennant, you know, somehow appear yeah. in a story. You know, Even for, for one line or just a photograph of him or something to uh, that, you know, being that they knew who the actor was going to be, they knew his what his face would be, um, they could have used that. And, and so if so there is a possibility of a multi-doctor story... Going to Logopolis, if you replace the Watcher with Peter Davison, <laughs> you know, that would have worked. You know, so, do we have any other news stories just to keep the show? Well, the other thing that we, since this has been going around the rumor mill lately, was the uh, story that David Tennant was going to be leaving in the middle of the next series. And uh, there's um, the Daily Mirror reports that um, that David Tennant has signed a one million pound deal that will um, that he's going to be on the series for the entire fourth series. So uh, we know that he's in for at least the, the complete series of um, for next year. That having been said, the BBC also said that Billy yes. Piper was staying on past uh, last year. Yeah. yeah, you have to kind of uh, read in between the lines, but I think when money gets thrown around, or I don't know, maybe they're trying to impress people with saying, well, look, effectively we're paying him $2 million for a series. You know, people get impressed by that and think, oh, well, it's got money behind it and it's good. But I think when figures get thrown around like that, they, it's got to be, there's got to be some truth in it. Well, maybe yeah. they, also it's a, a, a public relations thing where they can show that they're committed to the show by saying, exactly, look how much money yeah. we threw out there. You know, if, if we weren't yeah. serious about the show, we wouldn't do this. But what I should have done uh, prior to recording today, James, I should have put out little packets of salt so we can take all this news with a grain of it. <laughs> because it just seems like, you know, every time we hear something where they say, this is definitely it, 
of course it's, it doesn't happen it or, doesn't or, yeah it's tentative <laughs> or get swept under the carpet later on something like that so I'm going to go for a hat trick here and ask you is there anything else in the news <laughs> I, I have nothing I would like to talk about. <laughs> Lewis. No, I, I think uh, what we'll do is we'll come right back and we're going to proceed with our feature, which is our interview with John Keel. So we'll be, we'll right, be right back. back. Hi, this is Mike Tucker. I'm the visual effects designer on series one and two of Doctor Who, and you're listening to Podshot, presented by Echoes Gallifrey. Immortal Beloved by Jonathan Clements. Not far now, Sorati. Got you. Nearly lost you. We wouldn't want that yet. No. Come on. We need to climb a little higher. There's something else. Dayton didn't make much sense on the radio, but it seems we have visitors. Visitors? Move, Zerati. I'm not scared of a magic staff. Magic staff? So shoot me then. It's what I want. No, don't touch her. Let go. Back up. This is no concern of yours. Put down the magic wand, Kalkin, and stop being such a stupid... Kalkin, no, give me that. What is this, the planet of idiots? There is one less now. Please, let me in here. The portal washes those it admits of bad humours, ready for the chamber of incarnation. Yes, fine, so open the door, please. Let me in, wash off all my bad humours, too. The cycle takes several minutes. You will arrive late for the operation. But I... Operation? Did you say operation? A very complicated one, yes. Not magical healing or casting out demons. Because if you don't mind my saying so, you're not helping by dressing everything up in such fancy language. Really? For instance, what's that in your hand? This? Oh, uh, it's an ether trumpet, of course. A walkie-talkie. And as for this portal, I'm guessing the phrase decontamination chamber means something to you. (laughs) My, what big words you have. All the better to know you with, Mr... I am Zeus, Lord of the Skies, bringer of storms, and so on. There's a thing. Oi, Taden, why are we waiting? The sprites are gathering in the air, ready to do their work. Oh, fairy lights. Uh, close your eyes, Lady Lucy. <gasps> what are they doing? We are being cleansed, ready for the Chamber of Incarnation. Oh, blimey, y- your clothes have gone see-through. As my lady, I have yours. Ooh, what? That is why we keep our eyes closed. It is done. Follow me. Portal of cleansing? Portal of perving, more like. Doctor Who, Immortal Beloved. Starring Paul McGann and Sheridan Smith. Available at Big Finish. Bigfinish.com What are all these notes? What, these? Instruments. These are for controlling our flight. Well, yes. You see, we travel around in here through time and space. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Don't laugh. It's true.
You are listening to Doctor Who Pachak, recorded live at Icon 26 in Stony Brook, New York. And now we're giving an opportunity for everyone to attend a live recording of Doctor Who Pachak. No matter where you live, you can join us as we record a live episode each week as we review the previous night's episode of Doctor Who. Yes, go to our website at podshock.net or thegallifrenembassy.org to find out details. Join us live via the internet as we record and review each episode. Remember, this will be a spoiler zone, so if you haven't seen the newest episode, be warned. Once again, find out the details on our website, podshock.net or gallifranembassy.org, and join us each week as we record a special live edition of Doctor Who Podshock. You can just listen or you can participate by joining in the discussions. So be part of the fun or just listen. Either way, you're invited to listen to Doctor Who Podshock live. See you there. We're back with Doctor Who Podshock. Once again, with me is Ken Deep, and via the net we have um, James Norton. And we're very honored and uh, privileged to have special guests with us, uh, noted author, author, writer, John Peel. Hello. Now, last year when uh, we were here at ICON together, uh, you and I spoke and we we held a a Doctor Who panel, but we didn't have the microphones handy. So this time around, for those of you who may have been uh, with us last year, you may hear a few questions repeated, but that's for the benefit of the global audience this time around that will actually get a chance to hear questions like, so how did you get involved in all this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I was one of the target audience, I think, for Doctor Who. Uh, when Doctor Who began in 1963, I was nine years old. And I was a big science fiction fan even then, even though I didn't know quite what science fiction really was then. Um, I'd been watching things like Jerry Anderson's Fireball XL5, which was just um, astonishing for me. And I was exactly the right sort of person that Doctor Who was aimed at. And I missed it. Um, we, we had thought originally that Doctor Who was some kind of an American uh, medical show like Dr. Kildare or Ben Casey, um, you know, maybe about some amnesiac who'd, who was trying to regain his memory or whatever. So we ignored it. Um, but we caught the, end, the tail end of the, the fourth episode of uh, Tribe of Gum, and we saw these people running across a, a prehistoric landscape chased by cavemen run into a police telephone box. And we're like, what? is going on here, you know. And then when, of course, the TARDIS vanished, only to turn up on a world where the um, the radiation counter suddenly goes up, we hadn't got a clue what was going on. We, we were completely lost, and we were completely hooked. So the very first story I actually saw all the way through was the very first Dalek story, because the following week we were sure to tune in. And I've been watching pretty much since then. So you... you along with probably half of the nation, half of the UK, are glued to the, the first Dalek story in, in the, the black and white days with a grainy, I'm sure, a pair of rabbit ears to, to tune No, no, no. They, they, they had a um, very early kind of cable. We, we would have it through something called Rediffusion. And um, it was plugged in, I remember, by the window. 
um, a little box by the window, and you had to click it from channel to channel on, on this little box. Uh, from channel to channel was actually two channels, you know, so I mean, it wasn't exactly difficult. Um, but yeah, it was very grainy, and it was the era where TVs had to be turned on 10 minutes early before you could see anything on the actual screen itself. Um, so most of what we saw was pretty grainy, and um, it was still very addictive. <laughs> you went on to write the novelizations to the Dalek Master Plan, amongst your your uh, your books and, and, and a, a wealth of books on Doctor Who, but those two in particular are probably the ones that Doctor Who fans just right off the bat know: the Dalek Master Plan novelizations, which were an enormous story, a story that had a, 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 a lot of scope. What kind of uh, input did you get as far as when you you get assigned to do these these novelizations? You put in, you say, I want to I want to do the Dalek Master Plan. Do you get the shooting scripts? Did you speak to Terry Nation at all? How did you? What does what does an author do who didn't originally write the story? Um, in, in my case, actually, it, it was the other way around. Uh, what happened was, for years, Target had wanted Terry to allow them to do the Dalek stories, and he kept complaining and saying no because. They were doing 100-page novelizations of his complex scripts and turning them into drivel, was what he thought. I mean, I'm not saying that Terry, uh, Terrence Dix was writing bad stories, it's just that he was told to write them in a specific format. Mm -hmm. And Terry did not like the format. Neither did the fans, really. I mean, these, these very short novelizations really weren't giving anybody anything to go on. And Terry just simply said, I'm not allowing them to do this. And for years after that, they kept going back to Terry saying, can we please, can we please, can we please? And he kept saying no. Um, in the meantime, I'd contacted Terry through another project, which turned out into the uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks book. And Terry and I had gotten into a lot of conversations, and he liked the way I saw the Daleks. So when, after one more time, Target had come back and said, please, 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 can we do the Daleks? He said, on one condition, John Peel writes them. And Target didn't care because they knew whoever's name was on the cover, Daleks. the Daleks would sell the book. So they said, sure, he can do anything he likes. And Terry took them at the word. And he came back to me and he said, John, you're going to write the Dalek books for me, aren't you? Well, I mean, how could you say no, right? So I said, yeah, sure, yeah, I'd love to. And... Um, he said, fine, okay, talk to them. So I talked to them, and um, what happened was we, we did the chase first, okay. and there was a problem with the chase. Um, if, you, if you watch the TV show, I love the concept and everything, but some bits of it are really, really embarrassing. Uh, the, the first episode part, for example, where... Vicky is talking about her childhood fantasy of the, of the princess in the castle. It was just excruciating. And I was thinking, I cannot write this in the book. This is terrible. And I'm, I'm writing down all the things that I, I was going to have to talk to Terry about and say, look, Terry, sorry, I've got to cut these because I would be much too embarrassed to put them in the book. And Terry sends me his original scripts. And then nowhere to be found. Well, no, he sends me, yeah, he sends me the original scripts and I start reading through them. And I'm like, wait a minute, that scene's missing. Yeah. That scene's missing. Every single scene that I had problems with, Terry hadn't written. They were put in later by Danny Spooner, the scriptwriter. Mm -hmm. What had happened was um, I discovered that Terry's original script would have been way too expensive to film because he had huge cities underground. He had um, perspectives of shots that could, could not have been shot by the BBC without spending, you know, hundreds of pounds, you know, which the BBC would not do back then, and so on and so forth. And all the stuff that I, I wanted taken out was already out. 
And I was reading these scripts and I was entranced, having watched, just watched the show again, and then reading the scripts, the, the scripts were just so much richer. So I went to Target and, I, uh, and said to them, look, uh, I'm not going to novelize the TV version, I'm going to novelize Terry's original scripts. Is this okay? And they said, do what you like, Dalek, 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 you know, we don't care. So money, I got away. What, I, what I eventually did was, of course, I melded the two. I put in all the good aspects from the TV shows that were, were there, and all of Terry's stuff that was missed out. I mean, I included every bit of Terry's stuff that was missed out, because it was too good. Um, the only change I ended up making was to the Mary Celeste sequence, and to the um, the bit on the on the Empire State Building because Terry had when he was doing his research had not actually gone up the Empire State Building and didn't realise that you couldn't go to the top to do the um, to do the Dalek sequence. So although it says in his scripts they're on the top floor of the Empire State Building, I moved it back down to the eighty sixth floor because the Daleks couldn't fit on the top floor. You know, there's no way. So I, I, that was my that was my big change to the whole story. You know, moving the floor. Um, then when we came to doing the master plan. Uh, it, was, it was interesting because, of course, I, I had been. They had said to me, "You can write the book as long as you like um, with the chase." So it was a much larger book than the 120 pages. Um, but with the Dalek Master Plan, of course, being 12 parts, my immediate fear was, "I'm not going to get try and put 12 parts of Dalek Master Plan, well, 13 including the um, the cutaway, 13 episodes effectively into a 120 page book." I mean, no way. It, it, it would be 10 pages per episode, you know. Ridiculous. So I said to them, either we do one long book or two shorter books um, and, and give them the full value. So they said, fine, which would you like to do? And I said, two shorter books. And Terry said to me, why, why do you want to do two shorter books? And I said, well, we get two advances that way. And he said, now you're thinking like a writer. <laughs> so um, we ended up doing the two shorter books. And, and once again, I got Terry's original scripts. And there was a lot of material in those that was never filmed. And I, I did that. Plus, I put in a few little extras myself. Um, one of the things Terry had forgotten, for example, was the, um, the subplot about the, the tape recording from... The, the Nightmare Begins, mm -hmm. he'd forgotten about it. By the end of the 13th episode, he'd forgotten he'd put it in in week one. So um, I wrote it back in again. Things like that. I, I just tidied things up a little bit, and it was great fun. Well, in that case, you didn't have... Uh, with The Chase, you had the episode you could look back on. Right. But that one, you pretty much had the scripts. Did you use any of the audio or any, any other supplementary material to help you flesh out what you wanted to do? Um, I had a lot of photographs and things, so I, I could describe things a little easier. Mm -hmm. Um, the audios I had were terrible quality back then, so I, I would be listening to them with, you know, straining to hear what was being said and checking it against the script, writing in dialogue changes and everything. So my, my versions of the scripts have all these little dialogue changes all over them, but um, a lot of the time I, I couldn't hear what was really going on on a lot of them anyway. Um, so some of it just simply I, I had to give up on. I, there was nothing I could do about it. But as much as I could, I kept it as faithful to the transmitted version and also Terry's scripts. Mm -hmm. So um, that was Terry always seemed to write some some very ambitious scripts, and then of course on Doctor Who's budget they would trim them down a little. You tried to, and the the purpose of doing a novelization was to be able to to recapture that creativity. The fact that many of the script writers wrote very uh, very large scaled stories that unfortunately for television had to be scaled back. Right, exactly. I mean Terry Terry would write the stories, and in the back of his mind he would think, well, you know, the BBC budget, I can't really put too much in. But he would write them the way he felt they should go. 
And then he would trust whoever was the script editor at the time and the producer to do as much as they could and then just cut what was necessary. Well, he also, you know, as long as this paycheck rolls in, I'm surprised whatever, whatever he handed them would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Per, pretty much. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, you, that was you got the my scripts, I yeah. got my paycheck. Yeah, and then um, Terry would walk away. Yeah. Uh, and some of the times he didn't even actually watch the shows when they were transmitted, uh, mostly because he was so busy. I mean, at the same time as he was writing these Dalek stories, he was, he was a script editor on The Saint. He was helping develop a series called The Baron. Um, and it was just, he was just working like crazy. He, he was nonstop writing. So a lot of the time, it, it would literally be, finish the script, what's my next job, onto that one. Oh, time for another Doctor Who script, write that one. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the, the, the kind of continuity gaps would be caused simply because he was just so busy. And probably just couldn't remember what he, you know... It, it, and also, there was nothing much to go back on. I mean, it wasn't like you have a computer with a, a word processor and you could just say, oh, pull up the last episode. Right. It would have been sent into the BBC. They would be making their changes and everything. He would have a copy of it probably lying around, but it would be mixed in with about a dozen other scripts, you know. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time he would just simply say, oh, I remember what's going on and just <laughs> carry on. And then, you know, whatever came up. Mm -hmm. So you got to uh, you work pretty closely with Terry. How did your relationship with him begin? Um, it, it, became, it began in a very strange way. Um, St. Martin's Press over here contacted me because I, um, they knew I was a Doctor Who expert and I was the closest one and cheapest contact. Um, so they, they had called me up and said, we want to do a Doctor Who book. And we have these ideas. Will any of them work? And they read me the ideas and they were dreadful. I mean, really bad. They were the sort of things that um, somebody who vaguely thought they knew the show might come up with. They were not fan-driven material or anything like that. And I, I, I heard them all out. I said, no, none of them will really work. Uh, they, there's just not a market for these ideas. And what you need, for example, is something like Terry Nation wrote back in the 60s, um, the Dalek out of space book. And they said, oh, do you think Terry would update it for me? And I said, well, I really don't know. So uh, I managed to get in contact with Terry, and I said to Terry, look... Um, St. Martin's is interesting in perhaps reprinting your Dalek Out of Space book. Would you be okay with that? And he said, well, you know, it was written 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, and it's not really going to be good. And I said, well, you know, you could update it. And he said, no, no, I'm too busy. Uh, he was working on um, with Paramount at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said, you could do it. And I was like, oh, okay. So we ended up negotiating the deal with, um, with St. Martin's that I would update the book. But then when I started to look at it, I realized we couldn't simply update it. It wouldn't really work. And we, we, we recast it as doing a, a kind of a, a, a potted history of the Daleks. And at the time, Terry was living in Pacific Palisades. And he'd moved over from England with boxes and boxes of scripts, all of which were stored in the garage. And uh, what would happen is I would say, OK, I'm doing another chapter today. Um, and he would say to his wife, Okay, go and get the uh, whatever Doctor Who stuff you can find in the garage, you know, mail it to John. So I would get these packages like once every three weeks, and I wouldn't have a clue what was in them because it was whatever she happened to find on the top of the boxes. So we, we turned up an amazing amount of stuff that way that Terry had, had no idea about. I mean, he would say, I don't remember that at all, you know, no idea, no clue. Um, so it was, it was interesting, but that's, that's how I got to, to know Terry. Um, I didn't actually get to meet him until we'd actually finished the book. And then I got to meet him um, face to face um, just the one time. 
and uh, it was fascinating. A very, very interesting character. Because um, what, what was kind of embarrassing for me was I had done some, I had criticised some of his work in print, mm-hmm. and I knew Terry had seen this, and I'm thinking, oh boy, what's he going to say? And his his only comment was, "You're entitled to your opinion," you know, he didn't bother him, and I would say, well. Can I change this? Can I change that? And he'd say, John, you're the writer. It's your book. You do what you feel needs doing, and I'll back you 100%. He was the most amazingly generous person like that, and he was he was very, very kind. Do you think perhaps that that respect came from the fact that you may have criticized him, and that he may have even taken... You thought that your criticisms weren't unfair? Um, I think that's part of it, uh, true, yes. Um, the other thing is he was just a very nice guy. I mean, he, he just liked people. Mm-hmm. He, he was very... Friendly, very generous, uh, very outgoing, and um, genuinely—he was—he was quite surprised by all of the interest people showed in his work. And he—he he never quite—I don't think he ever quite got to, ha- to grips with the fact that there were fans out there. You know, I mean, he—he he knew they were fans, but it, it kind of bemused him a little that there were people so Im- involved. Uh, I know when I was trying to do the, the Dalek history, his comment on it was, "Good luck, I can't do it." <laughs> Yeah, that was the feeling I got. We had the pleasure of interviewing him um, 20-some-odd years ago, obviously, before he passed, and um, that was the, the gist I got from that. It was just, um, it was just like, he couldn't believe, because it was here, I think it was in New York City, and it was just a lot of people attending the convention, and it was during the mid-'80s, and Dante was really peaking here in the Blake States. Blake 7 had just started. Blake 7 was getting its popularity here in the, in the U.S. So, um, yeah, that was a wonderful fellow, and, um, you know, it's... it's and, and like you said, surprised that, that I think yeah. the fandom really surprised him. I mean, he knew people were watching. Obviously, he would be getting paid if someone wasn't watching the show. But the fact that people knew his words, right? You know, and knew his name. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to remember also, Terry's name was very well known in England because of the Daleks, mm-hmm. in a time when nobody could tell you who wrote anything. They didn't care who the credits were, yeah. but everybody knew who Terry Nation was. He he was singing you know, with with that one Dalek story. He became simply the best-known name after um, Nigel Neal, who did Quatermass. Mm-hmm. It was Nigel Neal, Terry Nation. They were the only two names people would recognize um, in the general public for, for writing TV. Wow. Nobody knew who else did it. Which, um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't an important thing. No, it wasn't important then. You know, mm-hmm. they, they would know the actors, but they certainly wouldn't know who the writers were. And even to a certain degree, current movies here in the United States, there was a time only a few years ago where the, the writing credits were important. If you saw a writer you like, you might go. But even now, there's a few writers, but how mm-hmm. many big-time script writers would most people know the names of? Right, yeah. Uh, you know, it fluctuates. I guess hopefully we'll get back to a time when a, a really solid writer will, mm-hmm. you know, will make his name, his or her name. <laughs> Ben Lewis, I'll let you th- throw in the ball over to you for What I'm interested to hear is um, what's, what's your take on the new series so far? And Do um, you have any opinion or any feelings um, once Dottie came back to the screen in 2005? Um, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this because I really hate watching TV. Uh, not <laughs> not the shows. I'm not talking about the shows. I'm talking about watching TV, mm-hmm. uh, specifically here in America, because you, you tune in and you've got the credits get shrunk down oh, so you no. can't see who anybody in the show was. There's the talking heads across everything to interrupt you. There are weather advisories. Mm-hmm. There are commercial breaks. That, and I just can't do it. I, I can't take this. It just irritates me so much. I wait for the DVD sets to come mm-hmm. out, sit down in, in comfort, and watch them that way. And that's mm-hmm. the only way I, I watch most of my shows nowadays because the other way is just too irritating. Yeah. And you, you can't enjoy a show if you're, if you're constantly feeling like, 
get that stuff off my screen, you know. But, um, but I, I watched the, when the first season came out, I watched that obviously um, quite avidly. And the, the one I was, I was watching partly in dread and partly in, in hope was obviously Dalek. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, how are they going to handle the Daleks after I'd done all the all the Dalek stuff? I, I I felt kind of like you know there were there was some of me in there, so I wanted to know <laughs> how are they going to do it? Are they going to do it in a way that I'm going to feel compelled to complain about, or are they going to do it in a way I'm going to admire? And I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved that Dalek episode where they show the Dalek is so dangerous. One Dalek mm-hmm. can take out almost everything, and I and I just thought. This is the way the Daleks should be, and I was very, very pleased with that. It, it was definitely a return to the old style, where the Daleks, the Daleks in the Hartnell era, and and, in, and a little bit into the Troughton era, were very dangerous. Oh they yes, were, they were. They were something Medicine. to be. They were something that was a, a threat. Mm-hmm. When you once they became an institution, and you got into some of the Pertwee and and um, and Tom Baker stuff, it was almost like the Daleks became the you know the selling point. And it didn't matter what mm. they did, and they, right. they were reduced. Also, they were almost appearing, done to death. They were also appearing in other shows and comedy yeah. sketches. And well, uh, and also, um, unfortunately, with the introduction of Davros, the Daleks themselves took the back seat. Mm-hmm. They became mobile tanks yeah. and nothing much else. Mm-hmm. They, they had no mm-hmm. personality, they had no planning. It was all Davros. And that became so complicated by the end of the John Nathan Turner era that the Daleks were, were kind of just robot killers and that to me was demeaning the Daleks I wanted I always wanted it back to the original where they were they were dangerous they were mysterious they were scientific yeah and I, and I got this from from Dalek I, I really felt that they had gone back and they had done the right thing by the Daleks re-established them mm-hmm. as a yes, threat as a threat and, and that they were engineers and mm-hmm. planners and right. you know, they were single-minded, but that didn't mean they, that they were brilliant. Right. right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they were they were misguided intelligence, and that was the whole concept originally of the Daleks. Was mm-hmm. they were very very intelligent, but their intelligence took the wrong turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think they got back to that. I like the way that they, you know, they managed to do that. Now, following that up, um, going later in the season when they came back for the the the, uh, the season finale, and then mm-hmm. this, uh, in season two. Your impressions? Did they have they been retaining that? Have they been retaining that? I think they they have. Yes. Um, I I wasn't quite so keen on their second appearance because once again we had the, the Emperor Dalek came in, which was nice, and we had what I always liked was the the overwhelming number of Daleks. That was lovely mm. because I mean obviously mm. the BBC originally couldn't afford to do that. Right. Six Daleks tops, four usually, <laughs> you know, and that's their entire army. Whereas on on this you could see hundreds of them, which was great. Um, but but I, I found the, the story a little muddled. Um, they, were, they were still very dangerous and still very good, but the storyline itself was a little muddled. Um, on the other stories, I, I thought the, the Empty Child was marvellous. Yes. I mean, the, yeah. the whole concept. And I love that ending where he said, finally, you know, everyone lives. Yeah. And that, that was great. I loved that. It, it was just one of those things where I thought, wonderful. It was, it was beautiful writing. Yes. I, I enjoyed that very much. Uh, the, the writing... Uh, Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat, who also wrote The Girl in the Fireplace the following season, he seems to really uh, stretch the bounds of what Doctor Who is about. He understands Doctor Who, but he also seems to make it almost theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is great. Yes. Um, I mean, when you've got a show that's been running any, any length of time, finding something new to do with it is always interesting, and it's always difficult. And you, you will get someone who will understand how to do it, and then you will obviously get people who don't understand how to do it. it, it it's it's mm. it's the it's the nature of episodic TV. 
Um, but where it really works is when more people understand it than don't. I mean, even going back to the first um, Hartnell season, which I thought was probably the best season the show has ever had, um, simply because they just did so much in, in the one season, there are still duffers. I mean, the censor rights is kind of silly. Uh, but, you know, the overall writing quality is great. And, and, and so on with every season. There's always some that don't work and some that do. And right. It's when the ones that do can be very magical. They can, they can pull you into them and, and you know, really grip you. And, and some I of these are, child did that. Yeah, and then that's one of those things that if you were a first-time viewer, if you'd never seen Doctor mm-hmm. Who, there's so much going on there that if you were a history buff, that's World War II, and right. if you were a horror buff, there's this, this, um, mm-hmm. you know, this mysterious character who you know, is chasing people around, this menace there. Right. Uh, if you're into fantasy, of course, that, you know, that's what Doctor Who's all about. There's so many elements that yes. could attract an audience that mm-hmm. normally wouldn't be drawn to Doctor Who and get them to be hooked into the show. I think so, yes. And it was important you know, mm-hmm. that the, old, the, the fans who were already there were satisfied because right. the, the quality level was so high. Yes. But new people would be attracted saying, wow, I can't believe this. This is, this is, not, you know, this is not what I've been told Doctor Who has been all about. Mm-hmm. Um, John, originally you were doing novelizations of um, existing televised series of stories. And, um, and then eventually, there, and at, at one point, that's all that was available because the BBC wasn't really rerunning episodes. Right. So if you wanted to you know, get some history of Doctor Who and, and its stories and how things came about, really the novelizations was the only way that fans could um, access that. Um, but now, um, weren't you one of the first uh, writers to then leap beyond that and start writing original stories? New- um, I, w- I was the first one to write an original That's story because uh, I really fought very hard to do that. I really wanted to be the first person to write an original Doctor Who. Um, so I, I pushed very hard. And thankfully, Terence Dix was quite happy to be second. So <laughs> otherwise, I would probably not have managed it. But um, yes, I, I really worked very hard. In fact, Peter Darvill Evans, when he was going to do the series, um, had contacted me and said, we're going to do this original series, would you like to be one of the first ones to do it? And I said, yes, I want to be the the first. And he said, great, we've got this idea for something called the Time Worm. And he he had a very vague idea of it. And um, he he had sent me the concept and he had said, it's going to be this this kind of um, computer entity, computerized entity, something along those lines. And it was very vague. So I sat down and literally overnight, I wrote up this entire outline for a, for a concept and sent it, you know, this was back before the internet, so I actually physically mailed it overnight from, England, uh, from America to England, um, at great personal expense, to make sure he got it. And he called me up and said, actually, I wanted a story with Sumerians in it. <laughs> and so it was like, yeah, but you might have told me that before I wrote this entire... <laughs> so then I had to go back and, r- and write a story with Sumerians in it. Um, and I, I got to basically create the, the outline that the, the next three writers would follow. And it was kind of interesting because I, I, was, I was not sure what we could get away with. I mean, Peter had told me this would be for adults. It was not going to be for children. Mm-hmm. So we can have more mature themes. So... I, saw, I kept saying things like, well, what do you mean by mature themes? And he said, well, no sex unless it's necessary to the story, and things like that. Very, very helpful things. Like <laughs> So, um, I mean, I was writing the very first Doctor Who novel, and I really didn't know what the parameters were, so I was, I was kind of playing around as I went. Um, but I had a grand time doing it, and I really enjoyed it. 
Um, did you find that more challenging? Um, because now everything's coming from you, or, or did it give you open up the gates of freedom where you could just you know you're not restricted to anything that someone else had written, and you can really just go off on your own? Well, Peter had given me pretty much carte blanche to do whatever I felt like as long as the time worm got away at the end. And I thought, okay, what would I really like to do in a Doctor Who story? You know, given given anything I could do, what do I want to do? And this was at the point where um, they had done something on the show that I really didn't like, and that was making the Doctor almost omniscient. Mm-hmm. It seemed like every yeah. adventure he had, he knew what was going on, and he'd set a plan in action to, to beat it. And it was getting on my nerves, because I really felt the Doctor was better if he went into a situation knowing nothing about it, stumbled around a bit, figured things out, and beat the guy. Because that way he's more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. When he goes in knowing what he's against and having a plan, he just seems a little bit too strong a character for me. I I think the Doctor is much better when he's, he's... Bumbling, mm-hmm. not necessarily bumbling in the sense that he's making mistakes, but but doing it on the fly. He's mm-hmm. doing it on the fly. So what I what I decided early on with Time Worm was the Doctor would do the same thing. He would come up with a plan, and he would apply it and everything, and it would screw up. Mm-hmm. It would just completely go wrong. And I did that quite deliberately because I, it, that was my reaction against the way the show had been going because I really didn't like the way this was being done. I wanted to show the Doctor is more vulnerable. And in the end, he's the one who ends up creating the time worm because he misjudges things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I thought this was a better thing for the Doctor, where he's no longer as omniscient, he's no longer as all-powerful. He makes mistakes. And, I, and that was something I, I felt very strongly about doing in the story. Mm-hmm. And, and thankfully, Peter agreed that, that you know we could do this. Um, the other thing I did was where, when they... Uh, an old fan story I'd written years beforehand... Um, I wanted to do that the other aspects of the Doctor weren't completely gone. They were still existing in his mind, in his memory. And I, I like the idea of bringing one of them back to temporarily take over his current body. So I had um, the Sylvester McCoy Doctor, possessed, if you like, by the spirit of John Pertwee, acting like Pertwee. Because somewhere in his mind... There still has to be that aspect of his personality, and I just thought this would be kind of fun to do. You know, having having look like one doctor but act like a different one. It wasn't exactly because at that point Peter had said you can't have two doctors meeting, no no two doctors meeting. That was one of the rules at that point because they didn't want to do that sort of thing. It was going to get too complicated. So that was as close as I could get to having more than one doctor. But it it was it was a great deal of fun to write the book. When you I noticed with, as an example, Russell T. Davies on the new show clearly had a few things. The minute he got the call and said, okay, congratulations, you're executive producing and writing the show, he had ideas from being, growing up with the show as well. Right. Okay, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. Is that a similar situation where uh, story-wise, when the call came, it wasn't a matter of thinking of what's my story going to be, but were there ideas that you had always... Uh, you just mentioned that you had some certain concepts that you wanted to address, but from the, the start of the story, uh, was it more guidance from, from the editor, or was it something that said, you know, I've always wanted to tell this story? Um, actually, what it was, was was more that I, I just simply came up with the outline for the story, and from that, everything else grew. And then I could see points where I could put in things that I liked. Um, it With a later book, uh, with Legacy of the Daleks, that was 
entirely the opposite way around. When I wrote Legacy of the Daleks, what I did was I, it was a originally a short story I wrote as a fan back in the mid seventies. Um, it, it ran for like six pages, and I liked it, but nothing ever came. But it was just a fan story that I'd written and published in a fanzine. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got the chance to do a novel, I thought. I remember back to that story and thought, that is one thing that I really want to do because I enjoyed it so much. And then I expanded the, the six-page short story into a novel. A mm-hmm. um, lot of extra stuff in it, of course, but it was basically the same story. So in some cases, I would do that. I would, I would say, this is something I've always wanted to do. In other cases, it would just simply be a case of, um, what can I do now? What, can be, what would be fun? There's a, a controversy going on with the show currently where a... Um a writer is writing a story for television that was originally a, a novel, you know, a novel that mm-hmm. he had written. Um, so he's really just taking something that he had done himself and expanding it. Now you're someone who took a fan story and expanded it into a book. As a writer, many fans kind of feel that they're getting cheated. That they're saying, "Well, you, you know, you already wrote that. Why are you now right. bringing it to the screen?" As a writer, give me your justification as to how that makes sense. I don't to, see. Yeah, I mean, to me, it looks like it's exactly the same thing as making a film out of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, are you going to say you can't make Lord of the Rings because it's a book already? I mean, why? Let, let's see how he does it. If he, if he writes a good story, and if there's bits in it that aren't in the book, for example, that he can expand on, um, I, I see no problem with that. And if anybody wants to not, you know, film any of my books, I'll be, I'll be happy to say, yes, go ahead, do it. You know. <laughs> That's not a problem. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, it's, it, as I say, it seems to me exactly the same thing. Yeah. You, people do this all the time. They film things all the time. I was someone who was very pro mm-hmm. doing that because, uh, as you say, and, and as a writer, uh, I'm sure even after you have a final product, whether it be a day, a week, a year, ten years down the road, you might say, oh, I wish I would have put in that book. And, you know, there's always something that later on that you may think of or right. want to expand upon or say, you know, if I could just have, would have had a little bit more, mm-hmm. and maybe this is his opportunity to do that. And you know what? If it's a damn good story, then yeah, what's exactly. the problem? I mean, if it's a terrible story, then, you know, don't fall <laughs> by all means. But if it's a good story, yes, let's go for it. Well, um, I, I know, as you say, I, I'd love to go back and redo some of my earlier books um, and, and just simply say, because I'm writing differently now, I could go back and write that book over again and do a completely different job of it. So maybe he does the same, yeah. James, Lewis and I have been eating up all the questions, so I'm just... Uh... It's funny because every question that I've had written down that I've wanted to <laughs> ask, you've either asked or, uh, you know, <laughs> it's already been answered. Uh, so, but that was going to be one of my questions, just relating back, is if... if it could be done again new, one of your stories, one of your books, into a television series. Um, which book do you think you would pick? Oh, probably, um, speaking as a Dalek historian here, probably Evolution, which is the one non-Dalek story I see. Yeah. Um, uh, Evolution, because I, I just had such a grand time with that book. Uh, the Fourth Doctor, Liz Sladen Teeming, I think was just one of the most magical on-screen pairings they had, mm-hmm. um, and I just I just adored writing the characters, and it, it was just great fun. Plus, getting to do um, a Sherlock Holmes pastiche and playing around with my own characters and everything in the setting, it was just grand fun. Uh, the, the whole book mm-hmm. was just 
um, wonderful for me uh, with the provisio that when I was writing it, it was actually one one of the very few books I actually delivered after the deadline because I had mm-hmm. injured my hand and I couldn't type fast enough. <laughs> um, so it was a painful book to write, but a very satisfying one. <laughs> well, that was uh, part of the Missing Adventure series, right? Right, yes. It was one of the first Missing Adventure stories. We, uh, we have our, our live audience with us, so I'm just going to give everybody an advance uh, notice that if there's any questions that are going to come up, you know, by, by all means, come on down, and this will be the audience chance as well to, you know, if there's some questions that anybody has, you know, raise your hand. Please feel free to step down and, or, or project. <laughs> Is there anybody that has any questions for Mr. Peel? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions was, uh, like, with some mentioning about adaptations, because I've noticed like, one of the writer, Harlan Ellison, was really up in arms when Star Trek did uh, City on the Edge Forever. Have there been any stories that you may have written or have seen where you felt, I wish they left it the way it was, or...? Hmm. Um, my, my only provisio on them was I, I wish they had allowed Terrence Sticks to write his novels more fully than, than they, they had done. Um, but no, I mean, most of the books actually were quite well written. Um, I certainly devoured them. Um, it, it, it was amazing for me because when, they, when the show first came out, they, they had done the original David Whittaker Dalek novel. And then a couple of years later, they did the Zarbies and the Crusades. And then there was nothing for a long time until Target suddenly came back and started issuing theirs. And they had just reissued the first three. And I thought, oh, well, that's it. And then I saw next month a new Doctor Who. And that, to me, was wonderful. I mean, I was just amazed that they were doing this. And this was at a time when you couldn't see them. They were not being re-shown on TV. So reading the Target novels was just a marvel for me. I mean, we were going back to the old stories that you couldn't see. So, I mean, I always loved the Target novelizations. And... And they got better as the years went on. Because the later, the later end of their run, mm-hmm. when they weren't as restricted, I remember right. uh, Victor Pemberton's uh, mm-hmm. novelization of Fury from the Deep is very yes. thick. It's very yeah. full story. Right. Uh, when, when they started to allow the, the authors to write, to to fill in, to to full, you know, make it as full a novel as you could get, yeah, as right. really when they turned the corner. When they oh. expand, uh, which one, Black Orchid? Yeah. Well. Yeah, I mean, like a two-part story. And they, took, they got the, they, didn't they get that one in the Green Day, too? No, it was, it was, a one of the, it was still a, a sizable novel for, 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 for a two-parter. And when they yeah. allowed Ian Monta to do the, uh, the Santarin experiment, and he just expanded way <laughs> beyond the story, yeah. and it was great. I loved that. I mean, that's the point of doing the novelization. Well, yeah. You're just going to adapt it and make a 45-minute you know, episode into a 45-page Yeah. I mean, what's the point? Right. Uh, That was always my feeling. Uh, My my feeling was always that you had to give the reader more than they could simply get by watching the show. You have to give them a little bit of characterization and everything. And uh, I I was amazed one one fan had actually criticized me for writing, um, when I wrote Evil of the Daleks, he had said that I I had explained too much about what people were thinking. And he preferred to make his own mind up on the subject. And I thought, oh, well, that's not what I see the book's purpose as. Yeah. Um, plus, I, 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 would, I would put in some stupid jokes in some of my stories, too, which uh, sometimes got cut and sometimes didn't. Um, in Evil of the Daleks, I didn't actually manage to sneak Mr. Scott in. 
Um, that there is a point where he, where when the doctor is waking up in in the past, he he remembers a, a binge on the town with a with a, a Scottish engineer from a starship, and that was Mr. Scott. You know, I mean, I couldn't resist it. Um, I, I, I don't know if anybody ever noticed it, but I, I mean, it's just it was part of the fun for me. Now, uh, David Whitaker wrote the original novelization for the, the Dalek episode, the, mm -hmm. one of the first books to come out. Um, we we know your. Uh, Relationship with Terry, and he trusted you with the Daleks. He liked the way you wrote them. Did he ever mention about any of the other writers that ever novelized? Did he ever say anything about David's adaptation of the uh, of the first Dalek story? Well, he and David were great friends. I mean, uh, David's work on all all of the Daleks. I mean, David had written the um, the original Dalek annuals, for example, mm -hmm. and he wrote the original Dalek stage play, and. Um, I mean, he and David understood, I think David, if anything, understood the Daleks perhaps better than Terry did, because he was not quite so close to them. Right. He could look back at, at them a little bit. I mean, for my money, Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks are two of the best Dalek stories, uh, both written by, uh, by David, mm -hmm. because he understood what the Daleks were about, and that there's some serious menace in both of those stories. Um, I mean, the, the wonderful bit in, in Power of the Daleks where the Doctor realizes the Daleks are back and he's in a panic mm -hmm. and he's doing that, you know, I want them broken up or melted down, up or down, I don't care, just do it. And the Daleks saying, I am your servant, you know, it's just brilliant because nobody can understand why the Doctor is panicking. And except for the viewers, of course, yes. the viewers can see mm. it and none of the characters on screen can. And it's just marvelous writing because you know. There's going to be something horrible coming. And nobody, they're all completely oblivious to it. And it's just wonderful. I, I love that. That's what I liked about the story also, was the fact that the Daleks were playing mind games with the people who didn't know what was going on. Right. To fall back on Davos, they were their own. Right. And again, in Evil of the Daleks, they, were, they, were, they had their complex scheme going on. And this is why I, I found David's version of the Daleks very compelling. Because he had them thinking. And they weren't monsters as such. They were thinking beings. Mm -hmm. And that makes them a lot scarier. I mean, mm -hmm. monsters are scary, let's face it. Um, I, I was just actually watching last night Pitch Black again, which has monsters. Uh, and the monsters are scary. Mm -hmm. But thinking monsters are much scarier, I think. Ones that act out of instinct are, are one thing, but ones that can sit there and manipulate the mind, it, it, it's, it's much more... It's more visceral, I think. It gets you more. And that's one of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier about the episode Dalek was mm -hmm. that you know here's the Doctor panicking about this right. one, you know, one mm -hmm. thing locked away in a, in a basement somewhere, yeah. and everyone else is like, "Well, what seems to be the problem?" Exactly. And he's yeah. like, "We know, and he knows exactly. what, what's about to happen." Mm -hmm. And they captured it very well, as you say. Well, wonderfully. That's it. I mean, the, the one thing is when you when you create that kind of attention, you have to pay off, and they did it in in both stories. They paid off beautifully. And, th and that's why, you know, you, you remember these stories. I mean, it's why Eel with Daleks was a fan favorite, even though no episodes existed for so long. And was still Be retained in everybody's memory. Yes, exactly. Same with uh, Tomb of the Cybermen. Yes. Prior to it being discovered, still mm -hmm. always ranked in a, in a, in a favorite. And whatever impression it made, yes. it stuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this is the in interesting thing, is that a lot of these old shows created such an impression. Um, I mean, the, let's face it, the very first Dalek story created a phenomenon mm -hmm. because it hit something that, that people could respond to. And Doctor Who is always at his best when it does that. I mean, the Daleks, the Cybermen, and, and the other characters like this, people 
they have a life outside the show because people recognize them and can, can, can follow with them. And most other shows don't have anything like that. And when, I mean, the, when the bad guys, too, have, uh, have something that are, uh, whether they're, they're a metaphor for something else, mm-hmm. like in the Daleks case, you know, based loosely on Nazi Germany, you know, that, right. how the, there's this, uh, this machine that mm-hmm. is excellent engineers and thinkers, and they were, they were, they were efficient at planning destruction, and that was, there was right. something to be said for that. Yeah. People could relate to that. It scared them because they'd seen it in real life. So mm-hmm. Well, with, with Terry, um, Terry had grown up, of course, during World War II. So for Terry, the Nazis were the monsters. So when he was creating monsters, obviously, he goes to what scares him. Mm-hmm. As a kid, it was the Nazis, the idea of an, an army, an un, almost an unstoppable army with no morality. And that's where the Daleks came from, the arm, unstoppable army with no morality. Um, and we, we all do this, I think. We, 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 the things that scare us most, even as adults, is, is from childhood. And the, ta- the Daleks really tapped into that, I think. And Plus, they, they were so unique. The design and everything, were, were, you know, there was nothing like them on TV. I mean, you look at the um, American shows of the same period, robots all look like robots. Um, there's nothing anywhere ever that looked like a Dalek until they tried ripping them off on Doctor Who itself. You know, yeah. um, the Dalek was unique. Yeah, and they tried to recapture it several times. In oh, the well, show. like the mechanoids and yeah, things. Yeah, yeah but it really. d- didn't work because they were they were trying to recapture it. Well, the, you know, the, the surprise was already lost. It's yeah, this, exactly. This vision of something without any legs and it mm-hmm. looked different than yeah. a man in a rubber suit kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, I was just um, speaking of favorites because we were talking about um, earlier just before. Um, I'm not going to ask you if you have a favorite doctor, but do you have a preference when you're writing to write to a particular doctor in mind more so than others, or or does it not matter? They're all different. Um, the, the, the funny thing was that when when Pat Trout took over as the doctor. I stopped watching it because he wasn't William Hartnell, yeah. you know, and I was a kid mm-hmm. and, you know, to me, the Doctor was Hartnell mm-hmm. and Troughton was something bizarre and I stopped watching um, until The Mind Robber and I couldn't resist watching The Mind Robber again and I suddenly realised, what an idiot I've been you know, I've missed all these, I've missed like two years of this show and this guy is good um, and the, the funny thing was, so when, when I came to write my Pat Troughtons, even though he'd be my least favourite Doctor on TV, I found it wonderful to write for him. It, it was it was wonderful to, to, to write Pat Trump because he is a great character. And I kept kicking myself, so thank goodness we've got some of these old shows coming back out now on TV. And I was catching some that I had never seen before. Um, but I, I do have favorite things. I mean, for example, my, my favorite companion was always Liz Slate. I mean, Liz was... Sarah Jane was just such a spunky character in an era where she was coming, she was following on the screamers, if you like, or um, Katie Manning's, um, you know, character uh, Joe Grant, who was a pretty brainless bimbo, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and to have someone who actually had a brain, had courage, who would do things. Um, because she thought they were right, even if the doctor didn't agree. I liked that character. She had a lot of push, and yeah. um, she was always my favourite. And so that was why when I could do a missing, ad- you know, missing adventure, I immediately said it has to be a Liz Layden story. Um, you can because- uh, definitely see the influence in the current series, I think, from Elizabeth Layden. Yeah, she definitely influenced. The, I mean, not only being mm-hmm. a guest star in the show uh, in, right. in series two, but but there is definitely the 
the writing style of, of, of a model for a mm-hmm. companion would be Sarah Jane. Well, I, I have to admit, I thought Rose was a great companion um, because Rose is the same way. You know, she she's adventurous. Yes. She's she's got character, and she will do what she thinks is right, even if it's not what the doctor says. And I, I like that. I mean, the, 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 you know, the companion should be able to say to the doctor, no, I'm doing it my way. This is what I believe in. Let me do it. Well, the old style seemed to be just that the companion was purely there to ask the questions. Doctor, or agree with the doctor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> doctor, why are you yeah. here? Doctor, where are we going? Doctor, mm-hmm. what's that green thing? Yeah. Thinking yeah. what the audience was thinking but wasn't able to ask, basically. Right. And yeah. now the, the new perception, the, the modern way of, of handling it in, in the current television show... Um, is that the, the companion is someone that's on equal footing? Mm-hmm. But the, yes, the doctor is uh, you know an alien and he's brilliant and he's doing all these things. But we have to care about the other character. Right. That's how the audience is yeah. is represented. Not only is the is the companion asking the questions for the audience, but the companion is feeling for the audience. Right. We have to care about her. Is she sad? Is she happy? And and and, that, and her reaction to things. Also, the companion is kind of like us, if you like. We're the, she is the audience standard. So it's nice that she's more proactive, because as an audience member, you're thinking, do something, do something. Don't just stand there screaming, you know. <laughs> and, and I like that. I, I like this. Uh, in, fa- in fact, I liked Rose better than I liked the Doctor uh, in that first season. I, I thought Rose was a, a wonderful character. She, she came up. Plus, she's, she's cuter, of course. That helps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. I'm going to go throw back out to the audience in case now that I've, I've warned everybody that we're having any, any questions that are all the way in the back, sir. Yes. John, what is your favorite? Uh, I remember you at, at Icon years and years and years ago. You wrote something about vampires, or, and uh, you wrote, I think you wrote some fantasy work, and now you're doing the Doctor Who genre. What is your favorite all time writing? What do you really, really enjoy out of all the pictures? I, I like doing my own books, my own stories, obviously, because they're, they're completely mine. But I do like working in other people's universes. I mean, when, when you're sitting there in front of the TV, as, as a writer, you, you keep thinking, oh, if only I could have a go at this. Um, what I could do with this character, what I could do with that, you know. And it, it, it's fun to do both. Um, I, I enjoy creating my own worlds, my own characters more. But at the same time, I have a great deal of fun playing in other people's universes. I mean, it, it's simpler, too, because, I mean, half of it's already invented. You've got the characters, you've got the setup and everything. It's a lot easier as a writer to go in and just pick up and introduce your own concepts or whatever to go with it. Um, plus, you, you, you can get to be a gadfly. I mean, I, I love going in and saying, what can I do in this that they can't do on TV? And, um, I mean, for example, with War of the Daleks, I, I, I set out to write oh, basically a Second World War novel, which you could never do back at that time on the TV because the budgets were so constrained. Mm. I could have a Dalek army invading the galaxy. The BBC could have four Daleks coming down a corridor. You know, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking. I could play games here, um, and also you, you you have the fun of doing the the customary things. Um, in in War of the Daleks, I had the the inevitable meeting between the first meeting between the Doctor and the Daleks, which always goes, "You are the Doctor, you are the enemy of the Daleks." You know, and I wanted to do something different, so I have the Doctor being panicking, and he he knows they're going to kill him, and they don't. 
And then he's more scared because they haven't killed him because he knows they've got something worse in mind. <laughs> and, and that, to me, was kind of fun, which they'd never done on TV. And I, I had actually pitched another Doctor Who, um, another Dalek novel, which, was, which they didn't they decided they didn't want to do but I was going to have it as a sequel to um, Evil of the Daleks where the Daleks come in, see the Doctor and say you are the Doctor, you are the friend of the Daleks and it turns out it's the good Daleks from, from mm. the power of the Daleks but to, I like to do the twist you know, it's like what's going on, twist it um, because you're, you're expecting one thing and then you can twist it and do something different that's, that's, a lot of the fun in writing is, is to build up people's expectations for one thing and then reverse it and people like that. When, when you're reading a story, when you suddenly go, whoa, this isn't what I was expecting. Right. But it's logical, as long as it flows from the story. Mm -hmm. um, when, that to me is great. When you're writing somebody else's universe, there's some structure. As a writer, do you like structure? Do you like the, the fact oh, yeah, that... Structure's, structure's grand. You, once you know what the rules are, I mean, uh, when they asked me to do my first Star Trek novel, uh, it was like, well, I know what the rules are for the Star Trek universe, so it's easy. Yeah. Um, and again, I did. I, I said, "What can I do to, to warp them? You know, <laughs> how, how far can I bend these rules?" But you know what the rules are. You know what the game is. You know what you can get away with. Um, I, I don't always pay attention to that. I'm afraid. When I was doing my Quantum Leap novel, uh, they, they had asked me. I, I had. I loved Quantum Leap, and I asked, "Can I do a Quantum Leap novel?" Because they were doing them at the time. And they said, "Sure. What would you like to do?" And I came up with this story where where Sam Beckett is killed in Chapter One. The Quantum Leap project shut down, the whole thing comes grinding to a halt, and uh, Sam's wife, Donna, has to do a leap back to save Sam. And it was a great concept. The whole story would have been wonderful. I mean, I love the idea that, that Donna jumps back in time to save her husband, and then she, she's the one who saves Sam for a change. And my editor took one look at it and said, I can't buy this. The fans would kill me. They want Sam Beckett. And he's only in Chapter 1 and Chapter 20, you know. So um, I, I had misjudged it there. You know, in that case, I, I'd gone too far. But uh, I, I like playing with the rules and seeing how far you can twist them. Is it different from editor to editor? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, even with the Doctor Who series, my, my first editor, um, whose name I'm sad to say I completely forget, June, I think, um, the, the, who I did um, The Chase and uh, Master Plan with, um, her, her editing style was, write it, we'll publish it. You know, that was it. I, I, I got very little feedback. With Peter Darville Evans, when he came in, I had much more feedback. But again, he, he kept the freedom going. And then with the last couple of Dalek um, stories that I wrote, um, the, the editor on those was, was again, more hands-off. Um, as a writer, I kind of like hands-on editors. Because sometimes you, you write things that you think are okay or, or good, but aren't. You know, sometimes you get hooked onto an idea and you think something's wonderful, and you're really actually just, you know, going into a, a fan stance, if you like. You're doing something as a fan you want to do, but it doesn't necessarily be the best thing for the story. Mm. And sometimes you need an editor to stand back and say, look, John, you know, I know what you're trying to do here, but it's not right. It's not working for the story. So, you know, I, I appreciate the hands-on approach as well. All other times I appreciate it when they just say, whatever you like, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm going to conclude and wrap up this portion, which is our feature portion of the of the podcast, and we're going to be right back with feedback from right here at SUNY Stone. Do not move. We will be right back. 
Do you remember what it used to be like? Were you there? In the dark days of the late 80s? Do you remember where you were when you heard your beloved show had been cancelled? Do you remember the feeling of lost as the doctor said that somewhere the tea was getting cold? And you knew the tea had been cold for a long, long time, but like me, you still wanted to drink it. Did you set aside some money to buy a full set of virgin paperbacks, no matter how badly painted the covers were becoming? Do you remember photocopied fanzines with letter-set covers? Month after month after month buying VHSs that filled your shelves. UK Gold trying its best but never quite managing and never quite understanding that we really didn't want the logo in the corner. All to fill the place in your soul that the BBC had left behind. Denying your fandom at parties. Ah, oh, who am I kidding? Like you went to parties. Defending Colin Baker to strangers. But knowing, knowing that somewhere the blue light still burned, burned on somewhere. Queuing at midnight for the Paul McGann VHS, and then weeping as some fool said half-human. And feeling something inside die as the universe's most inappropriate kiss heralded a note of discord that still rings out today. This is what it was like for us. The fans, the fans who believed in faction paradox, who embraced Big Finish, who wanted to hit the person who thought children need was a venue for our beloved show's death throes. People who used dial-up to watch Scream of the Salkra. We are the many who felt like a few. The lonely fans of the classic series. But now, now Doctor has returned to us, our Time Lord Saviour. We are not twelve. We remember a time when characterization meant more than simply saying sorry every three and a half minutes. But we love this new show. We are the fans of the old school and the new. We are the lovers of Doctor Who. Join me as we enter the golden age of the Hooniverse for Cardiff-based nonsense that calls out to us all. The Tin Dog Podcast. It's about time. Join me at www.tin.dog.com .co.uk www.tin-dog.co.uk And we're back with Doctor Who Podshock. We are live at SUNY Stony Brook, State University of New York at Stony Brook uh, for ICON 26. And it's Doctor Who Podshock, and it's we're going to do a, an abbreviated feedback as there's another program uh, scheduled to be in this room. So we're going to take a few questions and, or comments or any kind of feedback from the audience. Go ahead, you're the gentleman. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, fun story, uh, Genesis of Dolls. I found that a very broad story, a very heavy morality issue. Uh, for being uh, a moment of continuity in the plot where he is uh, questioning, have I the right? And then he yes. grabs the wires and rips them, and pre preventing him ever to carrying out the, the plan of the uh, time wars for the end of war. Then later on in the episode, he has a kind of like a pole reversal of uh, commitment, and he's going to put the wires together again, but he's interrupted in the scuttle, and the dollar goes over the wires and completes what he was wanting to do. Now, I found that very, like, 
the continuity issue, confusion, and the whole fuzziness of uh, taking away from the whole moral uh, prediction that he had. And yeah. I don't know how you would have thought about that. I mean, I, I think it, it was just a, a, a sort of a way of getting the doctor out of doing the, you know, with that conflict, it was sort of a, a, a dodge of not having him be the, the man. Well, he did this. And then the debate arises, well, did he do the right thing or did he do the wrong thing? He kind of mm. removed it from the doctor's hands. Right. Um, I, I think the idea was, was, was precisely that, actually. That they, they felt that the doctor could fight the villains, but to, to destroy even the Daleks as babies was a bit more than they should have the doctor do. It was, it was a bit too evil for the doctor um, to, to wipe out the, the species as babies. I mean, it's fine to shoot Daleks, but it's not fine to kill Dalek embryos, you know. Uh, mm. I, I think that was how they, they, they generally felt about it. Um, but Terry, Terry felt very strongly about the morality issues, um, which is why he, he, he loved Davros, because Davros was such an antithesis to the Doctor in his morality. And that, that, was, that was calculated in Terry's part to show the difference of attitudes. Do you think that, <coughs> that Davros should have been just a one-off for that story? Well, he was supposed to have been, and I think he would have been better if he had been. Yeah. Because when they brought him back, um, they never quite really knew what to do with him. And he, he, he eventually degenerated into a kind of pathetic character mm -hmm. rather than... And, and he took the Daleks with him. They become more, more pathetic or humorous than, yeah. than menacing. Like his bodyguards. Yeah. Whereas, whereas in that story, at the end of Genesis, where they just say, you know, pity, what is that? We do not, you know, we, we, we do not understand it. That is good because you, you see, he, he suddenly becomes aware that he's done something stupid right before they kill him, you know. But, but I mean, that was good. I like that because the Daleks there are very chilling. And you see why they're chilling, and and, and he learns in the and end he that, learns yeah. in the end that he's he's he's, an, he's a jackass for doing what he's done. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a question right here? Yeah, what you just said about Terry morality being very important to Terry, I wanted to comment on that. In 1986, probably the same convention you guys interviewed him, I got to do an interview with him also. And going back to what John said, yes, he was very nice because. We did the interview in the hotel bar, and he offered to buy me a drink. <laughs> uh, and I asked him about the scene in the first Daleks episode where Ian goads the Thal into fighting because the Thals are completely pacifist. And Ian says, fine, if you're not going to fight, I'm just going to take your girl here and rape her, or, mm -hmm. essentially. And that finally gets the Thal up on his feet. It's Ian. And he said, oh, he says, I'm really glad you noticed that. Uh, he says, because... And, and I'll, 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 I, I, when I do this, I lapse into his voice, so pardon me, John. He says, <laughs> um, it, was, it was very difficult for me to write that because it was, the, the issue I'm trying to is what level will it take to get someone to fight? He says, if I, he says I consider myself a pacifist, but if someone threatens my family, I will be an animal to defend them. He goes, and that's what I wanted to get. He says that everyone has a level that they'll be pushed to, where they're finally going to say, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. and, and so that... Yeah. Well, when I wrote um, War of the Daleks, I, I wrote in the idea that the, the Thals felt this terrible guilt that they had created the Daleks, that the, this was part of... The, because of their doing the war and everything, they had helped create the Daleks. And they felt this guilt that they had to take care of them. And they became these um, almost amoral killers in my story because they're overreacting. And Terry loved that. 
He said, you know, he said he liked the idea that they, they've overreacted and that they have to be brought back to reality to say, no, you're getting as bad as the Daleks. What you're doing is no better than them. And he, he liked that aspect. And when, when I was writing my Dalek, this was the first original Dalek novel, um, he insisted that there be some moral stance in it because he felt you, you have to have a moral point to your story. It was, it was something that he always, for his stories and for the stories to work, for the stories, the, the lesson of the Daleks right. always had to be there. And mm-hmm. that was sort of his... Uh, yeah, was it something he stated or something you just understood? Well, he, he actually he, he he didn't tell me before I started writing. What happened was when I did it, mm-hmm. he said, "That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's yeah. what I that's what I like to see." Mm-hmm. Um, Terry Terry never actually led me anywhere. He would always let me go, and then he would say, "I like this," or, "Well, maybe you could tweak it. tweak it." You know, um, he he was always very good like that. Yes, but he he always felt there had to be morality. In, in the story to make it work as a story. Mm-hmm. There had to be some moral point to what you were doing. To, couldn't, the, to the story you're telling. To the whole story, yeah. Whatever story you're telling, there has to be a moral point to it because if it's, it, it, can, it can be just a straight adventure story, but there has to be a little bit extra to it, a little bit more to, to, to feed on. Mm-hmm. Um, one final question, anyone? Lately, uh, it was mentioned there before we went on the air about how they were doing uh, CGI animation for the invasion for missing parts of the of that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel about about that approach and also maybe trying to do like an entire CGI story of let's say something that's completely missing? They may have the audio for it, but not the visuals. I think it would be wonderful. Um, I mean, I, I was sitting last night watching the first episode of the invasion, and it's a little creepy. Um, seeing seeing them animate real people like that, but um, once you get past that kind of initial shock, it's very well done. I mean, the, the production values are superb. The audio quality is marvelous, and I'd be very very happy if they do that with every single other episode that's missing, especially Marco Polo. Please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for attending, and um, thank you so much, John Peel. Uh, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank everybody. And it's great to not be stuck in uh, both of our respective apartments just squished in front of a microphone. Speaking for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) As the voice from above. Indeed. James, thanks for joining us. Yeah, sorry, I've not been very vocal, but as I say, you guys have answered or asked all the questions I wanted to ask John, so... <laughs> it's revenge for your attending that convention with Colin Baker and Chris. Yeah, well, yeah. you got all the love and we got nothing. <laughs> Charming. All right, well, again, there's another program coming up, so again, thank you so much. Yeah, cheers, everyone. have been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, recorded live at Icon 26, Stony Brook, New York, by the fan-run Gallifreyan Embassy.org, and presented by Outpost Gallifrey. 
Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Pachak is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Pachak. You can email us at feedback at pachak.net. As I'm sure you're aware, my name is Mr. Logan. I'm your new English teacher. Nice to meet you all. I hope you're all ready to <laughs> get to grips with some Elizabethan literature. Let's all turn to page 53 in our poetry textbooks. I think we'll dive straight in with the bard himself. Sir? Yeah. Are you English, sir? No, I'm Scottish. So you ain't English, then? <laughs> no, I'm British. So you ain't English, then? <laughs> no, I'm not, but as you can see, I do speak English. But I can't understand what you're saying, sir. <laughs> well, clearly you can. Sorry, are you talking Scottish now? No, I'm talking English. Right. Don't sound like it. OK, whatever you want. Now, let's get on with Shakespeare. I don't think you're qualified to teach us English. I am perfectly qualified to teach English. I don't think you are, though. You don't have to be English to teach it. Right. Have we got double English or double Scottish? 